when we're reading God's Word and we come across characters in the Bible, our tendency is to do one of two things. If it's a good guy or gal, we say, hey, I need to try to be like him or her. Sometimes we go so far as to break down their goodness, their positive traits and attributes, and what are the principles there? How can I apply those in my life? How can I apply the leadership skills of Moses? How can I be strong and courageous like David? And of course, the ultimate example would be, how can I imitate Jesus himself? Or, when we come across a real scoundrel in our reading, we say, boy, I better avoid being like that. Like Judas, Jezebel, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, there's a couple. I better make sure I'm not caught in a lie. Don't want to end up like them. But to reduce the Bible down to try really hard to be like the good guys and try even harder to not be like the bad guys really cheapens what we have in God's Word. See, God's intent was not to give us a bunch of good and bad examples so that we might sort things out and, and live good lives. No, His Word is a self-revelation. He's showing us who He is. And in that process, we see who we are. And we see a beautiful story unfold of how a God like Him would take folks like us and make us a people that belong to Him, and to do so at infinite cost to Himself. And so as a pastor and a teacher, I'm often discouraging folks from looking to the Scriptures merely for examples to follow. But this morning, finishing up John chapter 3, I want to suggest some ways that you might actually want to try to be like John the Baptist. There's a lot we can learn from him. There's lots we could benefit from actually seeking to emulate some of his better qualities. Now, I realize, here I am again, talking out of both sides of my mouth, but one of the really good reasons to discourage people from looking for examples to follow, is that that clouds the fact that the Scriptures are all about Jesus. They're all pointing to Him. They're all foreshadowing His person and His work. They're explaining what He's done and the beauty and the riches of it. Everything in Scripture was designed to point to Him. And so I guess that's why I'm okay to a certain extent of saying to us this morning, hey, we ought to follow the example of John the Baptist. 
Because if ever there was someone in Scripture whose sole aim and goal was to point to Jesus, it was John the Baptist. I want to ask you to stand if you're able. It's a little bit longer than we've been seeing lately, so keep that in mind and don't feel bad at all if you need to remain seated. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. May God bless the teaching this morning of His inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Let's pray. Oh God, would You come again in Your grace and in Your mercy And in your amazing provision for us, will you help us in this, our moment of need? Because we need help to understand your word right. We need the Spirit to come and to apply the word and to do within us, deeper than just our mind's understanding, but in our very being. We need the Spirit to come and do His work. And so, Spirit, come in these moments. Do what only you can do. Exalt the Lord Jesus. Draw men and women to him. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. So please be seated. So what are the ways that I think we ought to follow the example of John the Baptist? There's an outline in your worship folder to help you follow along. The first thing that we see about John the Baptist in these verses, I think, is persistence. You see that in verse 23, what John's doing? He's baptizing. He's still at it. Now, he's already pointed out Jesus. He's already said, hey, behold, 
He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It would seem that his work is done. Because verse 22, we see Jesus has his own disciples now. He and they are off baptizing, telling folks the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, believe the good news. We might reasonably assume that John's work here is done. But he's still out there getting after it. Still telling folks about Jesus, baptizing them. Because if you'll recall, we, we talked about baptism several weeks back. What was the purpose of this? What was the function of this? To, to try to get folks to see that they're not okay. All their religious activity up to that point is incomplete. It, it, it's insufficient. They're still in need of the cleansing work that Jesus brings. And, and so I do think that persistence persistently pointing people to Jesus. Couldn't we all benefit from that? I was thinking specifically for us here at Trinity in 2019 and this this desire to, to go wider in our outreach, persistently pointing folks to Jesus, persistently talking about the, the cleansing from sin that only Jesus can bring. Persistence. Now, the next thing on your outline has an asterisk next to it. You see, it's not technically a thing to emulate. It's a bit of an aside, but I think it's an important aside. And it's one of the reasons that I don't mind telling you, telling us, hey, let's try to be like John the Baptist. And it's because he is the perfect, imperfect example Verse 24 is a parenthetical comment. The gospel writer John is telling us all this stuff that he's recounting. Well, all this stuff happened before John the Baptist was put in prison. And so that tells us a couple of things. First off is that it's the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that tell us about John the Baptist being put in prison and eventually beheaded. John is assuming in writing his gospel that his readers have some of that other knowledge. They've they've heard or read some of these other gospel accounts. The other gospels seem to show mostly activity that happened after John the Baptist was put into prison. But John's just pointing out, hey, I'm giving you a bit of the stuff that happened before. Before he was put in prison. And so since John takes the opportunity to put this little parenthetical comment in here... I think it's a great opportunity to tell you what a perfectly imperfect example John the Baptist is for us to follow. He's got a lot of admirable qualities. Lots of things that we would do well to seek to exemplify. And all these things in the outline, it's good stuff. But he wasn't perfect. In fact, there there are no perfect examples in the Bible for us to follow with one notable exception. Even the best examples in Scripture are still flawed, sinful humans just like you and me. Now, right now at this point in, in John the Baptist's story, his faith is strong, his perspective is on point. But later, after he's arrested, 
and put in prison. And he sits there a while. And things aren't looking so good for him. You can read all about that in Matthew 11 at a later point. John's going to show that he's broken just like we are. He sends a message to Jesus. The one whom earlier he pointed at and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John sends a message to Jesus. And it says this. Are you really the Messiah? Or should we keep looking for somebody else? Oh, it's tragic. And yet, strangely hopeful to me. Here's John the Baptist, the one of whom Jesus said, There is no greater human. Period. That's high praise. But at the end of the day, he struggled like I do. He had doubts like I do. He looked at his problems and let his situation loom larger than his Savior. He lost perspective. And I guess that's why I don't shy away from encouraging us to follow his example. Now, do we want to doubt like he does? No. But we probably will. We definitely will. But the hope for us is as it was for John the Baptist, is this, that Jesus' rescuing grace is greater. The grace of Jesus is greater than even our biggest failure. That high praise Jesus had for John the Baptist, right? Uh, of anyone born of woman, right? So that's all humans. <laughs> no one greater. Jesus said that after this terrible message that John sent, not before. That's why he's the perfect, imperfect example for us to follow. Redeemed and rescued only by grace. He didn't have it all together, neither do we. Now, Moving down our list, we move further into the passage. There's a discussion in verse 25 about purification. And we don't know the details of this discussion. We don't know what it is they were debating. So it must not be that important. What we do know is what flows out of that discussion is verse 26. Uh, Out of that conversation flows some frustration and some alarm and some concern. And so verse 26, John's disciples are complaining. Everybody's going to Jesus. 
You're losing ground, John. Your market share, it's decreasing. Jesus has become more popular than you. And so there's this envy and this jealousy and this whining. Two good things we see out of this from John the Baptist. The first is a super healthy perspective on God's sovereignty. Look Look at verse 27. It's just this little nugget that he drops here for us. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So, Jesus had a job to do. He had a role to fulfill, and he does his thing. John the Baptist, he has a job to do. He has a role to fulfill, and he's doing his thing. And and who determined what those roles were? Well, God did. The following that John the Baptist had for a time. He says, God gave those followers to me. Whatever notoriety I have, God did that. It's up to him. He decides. He gives. He takes away. Completely his prerogative. Paul would pick up on this in 1 Corinthians 4. Similar situation going on. Paul, some of the apostles are more popular than you. And as a way of basically saying, I don't care, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? See, we're awfully quick to cry out to the Lord when things have gone wrong. Help! (laughs) Fix it! But then we think that we had something to do with the fact that things are coming up roses at, at other points. Oh, I did that, yeah. Worked hard, yep. Applied those leadership principles, you know, good business, good business acumen. I, I did that. See how all that flourish? Yeah, I did that. Super, super healthy perspective for us to have. There's nothing we have that we didn't receive from a completely sovereign God. So that's the first good that comes out of the whining of John's disciples. The other is this, is to see how opportunistic John was. Now, not in a bad way, in a very good way, taking advantage of every opportunity. So John's got this opportunity, his followers are whining, And he could just say, look, you blockheads, haven't you been listening this whole time? Right? I'm not the Christ. He reminds them of that, but then he goes further. He takes the opportunity to say, all right, I can show them a little bit more of who Jesus is. In my shushing their whining, I can give them a little bit more of who Jesus is. What he's going to do, what his role is. And so he, in essence, tells them a mini parable in one verse, verse 29, about Jesus being the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that is the the best man who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. This is a great parable analogy, if you will. Right? It wouldn't be right for the best man to show up at the wedding and wanting all the attention for himself. 
to think that that day was about him. Because no, it's not about the best man. It's about the groom and the groom's bride. And so it's a great analogy for John to think about his role as the forerunner, as the herald of of the coming Messiah, but it's more than just a good analogy. It's John taking another opportunity. This is who Jesus is. See, the Old Testament is full of expectations and foreshadowings that the coming Messiah would be a groom to God's people. They would be like a bride to him. The the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, they all pick up on this in various places. And so when John indicates, oh, Jesus is like the bridegroom, it's more than just a good analogy. He's saying, he's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the king you've been waiting for. He's the groom for God's people. The next place where I think John the Baptist ought to be imitated is where it comes to his great contentment and joy that he finds in Jesus. Now, John doesn't just respond to his disciples whining with a good analogy. He says, this makes me incredibly happy. Not only am I not whining about it, not only am I not envious or jealous about it, I'm rejoicing over this happening. That Jesus has overtaken me in popularity. That people are going to Him instead of me. Nothing could make me happier. See, it's not just smug resignation. Uh, I've been upstaged. He's more important than I am. No. That Jesus is attracting the crowd now shows that the thing that he's given his life to, the very thing he's been working for, it's been a success. People are now making a big deal about Jesus. And for John, that is joy. Now, admittedly, that seems like a strange path to joy. Becoming less significant to people because Jesus is becoming more significant to them. Would that we could all lose some significance like that. Because those around us are making a bigger deal about Jesus than they are of us. So many relationships that could be impacted. I think for for a church, right, that the pastor could become less and less significant. Like it it almost wouldn't matter who he was as, as long as he was being faithful to God's Word. It almost wouldn't matter who he was as long as at the end of the day people were enamored with Jesus. And they'd hear and they'd receive his Word from anybody. Think about in a marriage. Could your spouse become less and less significant or you become less and less significant to your spouse in the sense that they're not looking to you for their ultimate joy and satisfaction? They found more than enough in Jesus. 
And you're finding that together as a couple. And not trying to suck life from one another in significance and satisfaction. Even with our kids, that we would become less significant to them as they become more and more captivated by Jesus. Do we get that? John got it. John got it, and he found great joy in it. And he sums it up beautifully in verse 30. He says, He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And so for John, this recognition that his role was drawing to a close, right? That his light would grow more and more dim because of the coming of the light, right? This isn't just good manners. This isn't John just being a good subservient actor in in, in this play. It's not even that John the Baptist is saying, all right, well, Jesus is more important than me. He's saying, Jesus is more important than anyone or anything ever. He understands the preeminence of Jesus. And that's what these last verses are all about. Um, Verse 31, John somehow understands and perceives that Jesus not only comes from above, like that's the, the geographic location of his coming. He doesn't just come from above. He actually is above everything else in existence. It's what Paul captures so beautifully if you read Colossians, the first chapter, right? He's before all things. And in him all things hold together that in everything he might be preeminent. That's the Jesus that John is is understanding. That's the preeminence that he is perceiving here. And and he lists some of the reasons why Jesus is above all. In in verses 32 and 34, right, the message of Jesus is unlike any other. He's, He's telling what he's seen and what he's heard. That's something no one else could tell because no one else has been in heaven with the Father and with the Spirit for all eternity. So no one but Jesus can tell what Jesus is going to tell. And when Jesus speaks, it's not just his words, it's the very words of God. John the Baptist had important words, right? You need to repent, right? Judgment is coming. You better get prepared. You need this one who's coming. You need his cleansing. You need him. Those are important words. But he couldn't reveal to them divine, eternal truths like Jesus would. Uh, verse 34 also mentions the giving of the Spirit without measure, which we've, we've talked about before. Back when we saw the Spirit not only descend on Jesus, but he remained. Right? Because in the Old Testament, there were lots of people who, were, who, who had a, uh, an appropriation of God's Spirit for a time, for a particular thing. But that was temporary. Right? No, the, the Spirit descended on Jesus and remained on him. And later in this gospel, we're going to see Jesus promising to send his spirit, right? He couldn't do that if he didn't have the spirit, right? It's something only he could do because he received the spirit. The spirit remained on him. John the Baptist can't claim any of that. 
He points us once again to how superior Jesus is. And verse 35 is such an important link. Right? Jesus has all that he has, has received all that he has because of the Father's deep, generous, and giving love that he has for the Son. All things into his hand. And y'all, that is good news for us that Jesus has received all that. Because we saw back in the prologue, chapter 1, verse 16, that from the fullness of Jesus, we receive what we receive. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And that's what we must receive. Yeah, we've got to. Because we're reminded again in the last verse of chapter 3. We looked at it a bit last week. But here it is again. We've got to have grace upon grace upon grace if we are to have life. We need the grace of Jesus, the grace that removes God's wrath from us because He took it on Himself. Our beautiful Savior bore our wrath. He took our death so that we could have life. John saw that. John saw the preeminence of the only one who could do that. And he rejoiced greatly in that. Let's pray. Father, may every man and woman and child present this morning see a glimpse of the preeminence of Jesus. That He's above all. That everything else is underneath His rule and His reign and His domain. Everything else pales in comparison to His worth and His beauty and His glory and indeed His righteousness. without which none of us will ever see You. Holy Spirit, come this morning. Adjust our perspectives. Give us great persistence. Give us great contentment and joy in Jesus in the ability to make much of Jesus, and in the joy of seeing others around us make much of Him. Would you exalt the Lord Jesus this morning in our midst so that when He's exalted, He would draw men and women to Himself. We ask in His powerful name. Amen.